0: Thank you, Tony. Morning, everyone. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 9. chapter 9, as we continue our study in this portion of God's Word. As we begin this morning, let me pray for us. And Actually, let me read the passage first, and then I'll pray for us. Hear the Word of God. Verse 30. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is um, God's breathed out word. Uh, These are his very words. They're authoritative to us. Uh, They are inerrant in the original manuscripts, and let us pray for his help today as we look into these verses, that he will uh, give us eyes to see uh, through his good spirit. Let's pray. We come now again, Father, to your word. Uh, We come here this morning hungry to be fed by you. Uh, Lord, it has been a difficult week for many of us. And we pray that you would meet us here through the pages of your word. That your spirit would quicken us and fill us, that we can understand what's being said. And that your spirit would penetrate our hearts and uh, put the truth, apply the truth where it needs to be applied. And that we would put this into practice. Uh, Jesus, we need you to do this among us. I need your help to preach today. We need your help to hear your word please give it. You've promised to help us, and we look to you now and count on you to do this very thing. Savior, we pray all this in your name. Amen. Every one of us is born with an aspiration for significance, according to Dr. R.C. Sproul. He goes on to say, we want our lives to count. We do not want to fail to achieve the goals we pursue in our lives. The last thing we want to do is come in last. We are not satisfied with mediocrity. We dream of glory, of winning, of reaching the pinnacle of success, of getting to the top, of attaining greatness, of being the best. What one person called the will to power beats in the heart of every human being. We want to scale the corporate ladder and become king of the hill. Now, some of those might not be true of you. You might not want to scale the corporate ladder. Uh, You may not have dreams of glory, but I, I believe Dr. Sproul is essentially on the money here. I believe every one of us wants our life to count, to be great at what we do. I mean, what team ever chanted, we're number two? Uh, Whether whether it's raising children uh, or whether it's writing software for a client, we want to be the best at what God has called us to do. How we go about reaching this is what this passage is all about. Uh, What these verses are about, as we have seen him do before we'll see Jesus turn our desires for achievement completely on their head. He will turn our desires for greatness upside down. And so how do we achieve greatness in God's sight? And how do we make our lives count for the kingdom of God? And how do you and I attain the greatness that, quote, beats in the heart of every human being? That's what these verses will tell us. And to find out, there are three elements to, uh, to our passage. To be great in God's kingdom, we want to look at these three elements and understand what Jesus says it takes to achieve greatness in God's sight. The first element we encounter in our passages is the announcement. Uh, Jesus again announces his death and resurrection to the disciples. And let me point out three things about this announcement. The first is the location where Jesus made this announcement. Uh, Look with me at verse 30 again. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. Since the middle of chapter 8, all the action has been taking place up in this vicinity. Uh, This is where Uh, Peter's great confession of Christ took place. Uh, This is up here just a little further north. Mount Hermon is where the transfiguration took place. And back down in this vicinity is is where uh, we saw Jesus cast a demon out of a boy uh, last Sunday morning. But now we're headed back to familiar territory, not only in Galilee, but eventually we'll see that Jesus lands... Uh, in the city of Capernaum. that's his adopted home hometown. Uh, of course he was born in Nazareth but this is his has become his base of operations and that's where on the way to Capernaum is where this announcement takes place. Uh, we see the location where this that this happens. And then going beyond the location we see the revelation or we hear the revelation, Jesus reveals to his men that God's plan is already unfolding. As we've seen before, um, well, let me read uh, the rest of verse 30 and 31. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. As we've noted in this middle part of Mark, Jesus is not teaching large crowds as we've seen him do earlier in the book of Mark. His focus in this part of Mark is on his 12 men, the disciples. Uh, And a key component of his teaching is to his twelve men was the announcement of his suffering, death, and resurrection. This is the second time he's announced it. You remember the first time, don't you? It was it was very eventful. It was back in chapter eight, and Peter took exception to the announcement when it was made. Uh, not so, Lord. Uh, this won't happen to you. You're you're the Messiah and God's anointed king isn't going to die. He's going to conquer. At which point Jesus rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. Well, here now is the second time. We'll see another one uh, further on, but this is the second announcement of his death and resurrection. But Jesus stresses here that his death is all part of his father's plan. Uh, Verse 31 says, the son of man is going to be delivered. Whatever your version says might be a little different. It would be better translated, the son of man is being delivered. In other words, the father's plan to deliver up his son has already been set in motion. Uh, The plan for Jesus to suffer and die was already unfolding. Now, it could be that the idea of betraying Jesus had already formed in the mind of Judas, but it's more likely that what Jesus is referring to is God's plan set in motion before time began. Uh, In his sermon before the crowd on the day of Pentecost, listen to what Peter said. This Jesus, speaking to the Jewish men assembled in front of us, Uh, front of him. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This wasn't plan B, as so many are fond of saying. Uh, This was plan A. And also in Romans 8.32, Paul says this, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen to Dr. Sproul's comment on this verse. Dr. Sproul said he was Jesus was making the point that he was being handed over or delivered at that very moment. And the one handing him over was the Father. From all eternity, it had been agreed among the members of the Trinity that the Father would send the Son into the world to bring about his plan of salvation for his people. Listen. You probably have read this before, and yeah, okay. There is so much involved in your salvation. It was a plan that was formed before time began. Now, that's so abstract, it doesn't even mean anything to most of us. Before time began to most of us means before the sun came up today. God set your salvation in motion before creation in eternity past however far back that goes i mean it's eternity right god shows us in christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless and without reproach in him and here in the life of christ jesus says this is this is all unfolding right now before your eyes Think of what went into your salvation. You know, some of you went away on vacation this summer. And I'm familiar with the routine. Think of all the planning that goes into that. What are you going to do with the dog? Okay, you take the dog with you, or you uh, put him in, uh, uh, what, a kennel or something? Uh, someone will take care of him. Or you have a friend come over and feed the dog every day. What are you going to do with the cat? Uh, You know, do you turn off the water or leave it on? There are bills to pay in advance so you don't miss the deadline when when they come due while you're out of town. There's a lot of planning. How much of the kids' stuff are you going to take? Are you going to take the high chair and the pack and play? Will they even fit in the car? Uh, Your daughter's luggage and, you know, okay, we'll we'll get a U-Haul for that, I guess. We plan lots of stuff, don't we? You've made plans for dinner. It's nothing. For, for very important events, like maybe your parents' anniversary, you might plan months for, for a wedding. You'll plan up to a year in advance, perhaps. You have no idea. We have no idea of what was in the mind of God before time began about your salvation. About your salvation, if you know Christ, that is. The wheels were turning a long, long time ago. That he would draw you to himself through his Holy Spirit. That he would call you to faith in him. Well, Christ reveals uh, that his time, it's been set in motion. It's been in motion since eternity past, and it is is—it is now taking place. He will be handed over to men. He will suffer. He will die. This, of course, brings his men, you can imagine, into great confusion. It does not take much to confuse the disciples, uh, we all recall, and that's, you know, it, we're the same way, um, They were very disturbed by this. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. Afraid to ask him. They couldn't comprehend the idea that the Messiah would be killed. To them, the idea of a suffering Messiah who would be put to death, it just wasn't possible. That's why Peter objected to what Jesus said in chapter 8 not what they'd been taught. It wasn't the going uh, idea that the Jewish rabbis had taught. They taught that the Messiah would triumph, that he would conquer. And it was hoped that he would conquer and deliver them from Rome. And, And indeed, one day he will triumph at his glorious return. But again, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 somehow were Uh, overlooked in this process of what the Messiah would do. They couldn't comprehend it. And furthermore, what little they did get, they didn't want to hear any more about it. It it frightened them, what Jesus was saying. Uh, uh, Don't tell us anymore. Ignorance was bliss when it came to news of his upcoming suffering and death. So, we see thirdly about this announcement, the confusion and unrest it caused in his men. So this is the first element in our passage. This is, this is the announcement, and we've seen these three things about it, the location of it and the revelation that God's plan was folding, and then the confusion that came afterward. Well, this brings us to the second element of our passage today. From the announcement, we go on to see the argument Uh, The disciples argue uh, over which of them was the greatest. And I want to point out two things to you about this argument. First of all, is the embarrassment that the disciples experience. They are stunned into silence uh, by Jesus. Look at verse 33 with me. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Uh, The house mentioned here in verse 33, uh, because it's referred to like that, it's likely the the home where Jesus had gone earlier in the book. This is probably a reference to the home of Peter and Andrew. uh, The home that Jesus adopted as his uh, base of operations, And in this house, Jesus asked this penetrating question, what were you discussing? And it's more than a discussion. It's verse 34 said they had argued. That means to dispute or debate an issue with someone. And the topic of their debate was which one of them was the greatest. Now, I'm familiar with this kind of argument, I remember having many of them in my neighbor's backyard with the two guys that live behind me, but that was in elementary and middle school. Can you imagine grown men having such a childish conversation? Peter, James, and John uh, more than likely believe they were the greatest. I mean, after all, we are the inner circle, right? They'd been the only ones to witness the transfiguration on Mount Hermon, and they'd even received private instruction from Jesus. So it's got to be us. And I'm sure the other nine would have none of that. And they loudly object because... They'd had success too when Jesus sent them out to preach and cast out demons. They'd had success at that. Who do you think you are? They protested. Well, maybe Peter replied, after all, I am the spokesman and the leader of you lot. And then you can imagine the sons of thunder piping up, James and John objecting, loudly objecting. No way, Peter! whatever form it took. Uh, It was childish. Listen to Ken Hughes describe it. This was a tawdry, miserable affair. And Jesus knew what was going on, even though they thought he was beyond earshot. What a chill this must have brought to his already burdened soul. They had been with him almost three years And now that he was facing the ultimate humiliation of all time, they were arguing about who was the greatest. And their argument raises the need for the next thing I want you to see, uh, the instruction. Uh, Jesus takes the opportunity uh, to instruct the twelve on being great in God's kingdom. Look at verse 35 with me. And he sat down and called the 12. This is a deliberate um, thing that Jesus does. He takes the formal posture of a teacher. This is what a Jewish rabbi, uh, how a Jewish rabbi would instruct his students many times. He He would sit and his students would gather at his feet. And here Jesus is acting in that role as their teacher and their superior and sits and then summons his disciples to sit at his feet. He's, he's taking this opportunity. The need is great for them to hear uh, what, the, what greatness in the kingdom of God consists of. And his instruction comes in two parts. First. Uh, The first part of his instruction takes the form of a paradox. Uh, The way that greatness in God's kingdom ran contrary to common sense. Uh, And verse 35 goes on to say this. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The Jewish culture at that time was uh, consumed with questions of power and rank. And who was first? Uh, Jesus warns about this. We see it in Luke 20. And listen to this very thing taking place. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. That's what the disciples are concerned about. Uh, which one of them is going to have the best seat at the table? They want to be great like the scribes, so that other people would serve them. And this same uh, concern is widespread in our culture—to um, be king of the hill, to to come in first, to be number one, to reach the pinnacle of success. It, it's just—it's just poured into our souls from. Nearly birth, um, I experienced it in public education. You experienced it in in athletics, of course. Um, It's drilled into us uh, to do our very best uh, to come in first, if at all possible. This is not the way things work in the kingdom of God. This is not the way things work in the kingdom of God. This is not the way things work in the kingdom of God. What you've been what's been drilled into you your whole life is wrong. This is not the path to greatness in God's eyes. Um, The way to greatness in God's eyes runs contrary to common sense. If you want to be great, you put in a tremendous amount of effort. You try hard. You speak to the right people. You put yourself in the right places. How do you become great in God's kingdom? And Jesus uh, is very explicit in verse 35 if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The way up is down. The way up is down. Uh, This is described not only here, but there are other places in the New Testament. We saw it in our scripture reading just moments ago. Uh, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, the, the job of a household slave, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Can you imagine how offensive that would have been to the disciples? Think of Peter, spokesman and leader of the twelve. Peter, you you ought to wash these guys' feet. Are you kidding me? For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Think of these familiar words uh, from the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 2. You probably recognize this. So if there's any, uh, let me jump down. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others More significant than yourselves. Boy, that's an easy one, isn't it? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, So Jesus' instruction takes on the form of a paradox. That's not what we were taught. When were we ever told that the way up is down to become the servant of all? Well, first it takes the form of a paradox and then we see a living parable uh, Jesus brings in front of them. Uh, a living parable. We see this in verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. They didn't have the romantic view of children that we do in our culture I don't believe they thought of babies as particularly adorable, like we often do. Um, Children in our culture are thought of as simple and pure and innocent and trusting most of the time. Uh, But in Jesus' day, they didn't think about children much at all. The infant mortality rate was so high. So many children didn't live out of infancy. And because of that, they didn't become the center of their parents' universe like they often do today. And another reason is that children were regarded as, as insignificant. They, they had nothing to contribute. They were on the lowest end of the social scale. So Jesus is, when he says, uh, whoever receives one such child, he's, he's not just talking about receiving children, he's, he's talking about receiving anyone without status, anyone who's a nobody in the world's eyes. Instead of ignoring those without status and significance as they did, and as our culture does, Jesus was calling his disciples, and he's calling you and me to serve those without status in the body of Christ And to minister to our brothers and sisters who are insignificant by the world's standards. And when we receive them or welcome them or treat them with honor, we are receiving and welcoming Christ who indwells them. And when we welcome Christ who indwells them, we are also receiving and welcoming the Father who sent him. Listen to Kent Hughes. We are to receive all of God's people as we do children with, with no thought of their accomplishments, their influence, their fame, or their gifts, but simply because they are his children. Why? Because Jesus, along with the Father and the Spirit, resides in the children of God in the wondrous mystery of Christ's body, the church. We welcome those. We Accept those without status, without um, social standing. Listen to James warn about this very thing that was taking place uh, in the church. He writes in James chapter 2, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, for if any man wearing a gold ring... Listen, my brothers, beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man, and and are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So we see the argument as, as this next element in our passage they, they're arguing about how great they are, which is inconceivable, coming from grown men. And Jesus takes time to instruct them about greatness. And, and, and he instructs them through a paradox and then a parable. Uh, this little child that comes in their midst. Well, from the announcement in the argument, we come to the third element in our passage. And what we see next is the alignment. Jesus tells his disciples uh, that other Christian workers are not against them, but aligned with them. Others that work in Jesus' name are not the enemy. Now let me point out two things here as well. First, I want you to see the misalignment. Look at verse 38. Now, John, uh, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, I don't know how that comes across to you. Uh, silly. Um, maybe innocent enough. Maybe you think, well, that's a good thing that he tried to stop them. I'm not sure. Because he wasn't one of their number. I think he did it because the disciples found his success infuriating. Oh, this chafed. Consider why. Consider first that Just last week, their own failure to cast out a demon. And that was caused by uh, a lack of their dependence on Christ. And here's this guy succeeding where they failed, casting out names in the uh, demons in the name of Jesus. He's not even one of them. What is he doing? And it's infuriating because of his unauthorized use of Jesus' name. Not only is he not a part of their group, he'd not been commissioned. He'd not been given special authority to preach and cast out demons like they had. And for all they knew, he got his commission through the mail for ten shekels. (laughs) This guy's not real we've been given that commission and third and probably the most infuriating it meant they were no longer the ones with this exclusive access to Jesus what is everybody now casting out demons in Jesus name you know we're, we were the ones with that ability And that calling. Uh, Jesus' select circle was given that role. And now, now what? This is really personal for them. Their reputation and their sense of identity is at risk. If other people start doing this, people won't come to them anymore. And it's interesting how uh, John says it. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So David Garland comments here, their intolerance insists that God can only work through those whom we condone and who have first met our standards. We want to be the ones who make things happen. The movers and shakers and be recognized accordingly it's it's professional jealousy plain and simple the success of someone outside of us and john acting like the son of thunder that he was expresses his hostility toward this man warmly we would say there is misalignment between the disciples and others who worked in Jesus' name. But then, as you might imagine, what we see next is the realignment. Jesus reigned in his disciples and gave him the broader perspective of God's kingdom. Look in verse 39. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is pointing out that just because this man isn't part of the 12, it doesn't make him their enemy. Anyone performing works in my name, anyone casting out demons with my authority it's not the enemy, Jesus tells them. The one who is not against us is for us. We're on the same team. Our adversary, the devil, who comes to steal and kill and destroy, that's the enemy. Satan is the enemy, not this man. But it seems the disciples had this mindset than one author describes Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right, and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat and drink, but what I drink, look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then I'll fellowship with you. Jesus realigns their thinking. (laughs) He's not the enemy, Satan's the enemy. Now, I don't know about you, but I think there's a pretty obvious application for you and me here. And while God's Word does call us to be discerning towards other believers and towards other ministries, while Scripture does uh, teach us to jealously guard sound teaching, it does not teach us to make divisions where there are none. we separate from churches like the Kingdom Hall down the road because of our fundamentally different views on who Jesus Christ is. As well as the Mormon church and their view of who Jesus Christ is. We can fellowship, however, and rejoice in and even pray for the excess of like-minded churches like Mount Zion down the road and Milton Community Church even further down the road and Grace PCA on the other side of town as well as several others. Sister churches like those are not the enemy. The devil is our enemy. And while we take different views of theology, I'm sure we do, My good friend Robbie has a different view on baptism and I give him a hard time about it all the time. And he gives it right back. So we don't go to church together, but we fellowship. We go to the same conference every year. But his disciples have a chip on their shoulder. Wait, what? He's not one of us? And Jesus tells them, you know, others who work in my name, they're not the enemy. The devil is our enemy, our adversary. So how do we achieve greatness in God's sight? How do we make our lives count for God's kingdom? And how do you and I attain greatness that beats in the heart of every human being? We, we must see uh, the three elements of these of this passage, we must understand uh, the three elements: the announcement of Jesus' suffering and death, and then we see their argument about who's the greatest, and then hear Jesus teaching on being great in God's kingdom, and then third, the alignment with others who labor in the name of Jesus. Now, I just want to say by way of application that in terms of um, being last and servant of all, I have to tell you, I think you are doing a fantastic job. I think this body does it so well. And I have seen for years, you, you humble yourselves to serve each other in sometimes surprising ways. And I am profoundly grateful. And so please don't hear this as me beating you over the head again about something you're not doing. You're doing a great job of humbling yourselves and serving others in the body of Christ. But I wonder if all of you are And I'm not naming I don't know any names. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. I just press the point that we've had the world standard of greatness pressed upon us so so often that we think it is about being at the head of the line uh, and not at the end of the line. Uh, Of taking that first place in the checkout line of the grocery store beating out that woman with the cart who's got a lot of stuff in the cart. Now, I'm being facetious. That's kind of, that's a little silly. But we've done it, haven't we? There are other far more grave and serious needs. Brothers and sisters who've suffered loss. Uh, Guests who attend our church who obviously have been going through a very difficult time financially. The way up is down. It's to humble ourselves and welcome and receive those people as Jesus would. Those without status, those without significance. Let me pray for us as we uh, take the Lord's Supper. Lord, I think the difficulty with these verses is that uh, so often we're so consumed with ourselves, we don't even stop and think about other people. When Paul says, consider not only your own needs, but others as well, that's, uh, that's a really radical thought is to stop thinking about ourselves only and to take others into consideration. I am grateful, Father, for this body and how I have seen them serve each other and serve you time after time. And I pray, Father, that we would only grow in grace here. That we would serve each other. We would serve those who come through those back doors. That we would love them as you love them. That we would stoop if necessary, that we would not consider ourselves so clean and important and so Republican that we can't bend to help them. I pray that you would realign our thinking where it needs to be realigned, Savior. And I pray you do this work in us by your good spirit. Amen.